0: Well, I invite you guys to take your Bibles and turn with me to our scripture reading for our sermon text this morning as we continue our our short series on discipleship. Today we're going to be in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. Last week we began in chapter 1 and moved into the first part of chapter 2 in Acts, and now we're going to move down to the end of Acts 2, and we're going to read together verses 42 to 47. Acts 2, 42 to 47. And I'll ask you to please stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. This is God's holy word for us, his people. And God's word says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is God's holy word for us as people. Let's ask him to bless our time in this word. Father, you are, you are so good to us that you've opened your mouth and spoken to us, your word, that you have revealed yourself, disclosed yourself, not just in the events of history and to private individuals or to ancient nations, people long ago, but you have had in your sovereign providence, your word inscripturated, written down as scripture in the Bible, preserved and passed down to us today today. And you've seen fit to have it translated into our language so that we can sit here and in English we can know you and know your word and have you speak to us. And we are so thankful for that today. And we ask that you would bless not only the reading of this holy word but also now the preaching. And may it be faithful and true to bring out of your word what you have for us. So Lord, you be our teacher today. Teach us how to be disciples today. Conform us a little more today into your image, Lord Jesus, for your name's sake and for the glory of God, we pray it. Amen. You may be seated. So, we've begun this mini series. It's still only four weeks so far. This is week number two. We've begun this little mini series that I've called The Anatomy of Discipleship. And so each week is going to be based on some vital organ of some sort to our bodies as sort of a, an analogy of the vital organs of discipleship, those vital elements of what discipleship consists of. And last week we began uh, by looking at Colossians chapter 1 as the closest thing for A definition in the Bible to discipleship. So before we got into Acts chapter 1, we went to the book of Colossians, and in chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, Paul says, Him, speaking of Christ, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil Struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And so Paul leaning upon the power and assistance and aid of God. Who works up the energy that Paul has. He then expends that energy and toil. Struggling he says. To do this one thing. To bring his people in his churches. To maturity in Christ. In other words, to make them mature Christians. And he says, I do this by proclaiming Jesus, so preaching the gospel. I do this by warning, and I do this by teaching everyone, and I do it with all wisdom. I use all the skills that wisdom can provide in the way I proclaim, in the way I warn, in the way I teach... So that my specific hearers can become mature Christians. And I expend all my energy doing this. And so this is the apostolic ambition of discipleship. To bring people to maturity in Christ. And that's sort of how we defined it last week. The discipleship is the disciplined disciplined process of growing in Christian maturity. It's not a chaotic, willy-nilly, make-it-up-as-we-go sort of process. But it's discipline, and that's why discipline is the root of disciple. Because you use all wisdom to put some parameters and structures in place to help people grow into mature Christians. And that's what this series is getting at because we want to raise the bar on our discipleship in 2022. We want to go to that next level. Instead of just being content with good enough, we want to go to that next level and say, does God have more for me in my walk with Him? And surely He does. Surely He does. Whether we're, you know, wherever we are on that scale of how well we're doing, people who are really struggling and people who have a pretty good walk with the Lord and everywhere in between, there's always more. More of Him. More of Him for us to have and more of us for Him to have. And so that's what we're, that's what we're focusing on in this series. And last week we began in the book of Acts, and, we'll, and the book of Acts will be our launching pad for each of these sermons. We're looking at the early church, that very, very beginning of the church back in Jerusalem. What did their discipleship look like? And we saw last week that prayer is the lifeblood of discipleship. And that's the first vital thing. The blood has to be flowing in the veins for you to be alive. And for your discipleship to actually be a living walk with the Lord, the blood's got to be flowing. And prayer is that lifeblood. Prayer, a lively prayer life, is essential to being A living disciple. And we saw that in Acts chapter 1, Pentecost began as a prayer meeting. Everything that the Lord did on Pentecost started with prayer. And everything after that, up through chapter 5, we saw that prayer was at the heart of the power that the church had to accomplish the things that Jesus called them to accomplish and the last point we made last week was that you guys need to go find an upper room. The disciples were gathered in the upper room and they prayed and the Spirit of God fell upon the place. And the world hasn't been the same. And we're not asking God to use the forks to change the world, but, but do that if you'd like. That'd be awesome. Can we do that? I think so. And if not, fine. But we can change our little, our little corner, our little plot of the world. We can change that. And so I said, find an upper room. Make, carve out an upper room in your schedule, in your day, in your family, in your week. Find an upper room where you can go in that place, this sacred holy time, and be alone with God and ask for the fire to fall and for us to be filled and for our church to go forward with that kind of power. And if we're, if we're not even at least asking God to do that in a steady rhythm As the blood flows through the body with a steady rhythm, if the prayer isn't flowing in the body, the body isn't really alive anymore. So let us devote ourselves as they did to prayer and watch God do incredible things. In our passage this morning, we move now to the life of the church in Jerusalem in the immediate aftermath of Pentecost. This will be our key text in Acts 2 for the rest of this series. So... In the book of Acts, we find that some form of the word devoted is only used two times. Only used two times. The first time we saw last week, Acts chapter 1, verse 14. Speaking of the disciples in the upper room, it says, And these, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. All these with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. All of them were on the same page. They were all devoted to prayer. And the only other time that some form of the word devoted appears in the book of Acts is here in our text in chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. So here we have five things that the early church was devoted to. These five, and everything else is just just an outworking of these five things. They were devoted to prayer. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the fellowship, devoted to the breaking of bread, and devoted to the prayers. And we'll look and see in the rest of this series what each of these means and what they entail for us today. But this morning, we're going to start just with that first one there in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So this morning, as we look at this text, we're going to study learning. I'm calling it the heart of discipleship. So let's move into point one. The word disciple, like so many words in the Bible or in Christianity, I'm afraid suffers from being... What shall we call it? It suffers from being part of like the secret code language of Christians, like got like Christianese, right? It's one of those spiritual words that we all know but have no clue really what it means because it's turned into this like religious spiritual thing. There are lots of words like that uh, in Christianity, the words we just sort of know by rote but couldn't really tell you what they actually mean half the time. So what's this word disciple mean? If we d, you know, if we de-churchify the word disciple, the Greek word is just is not a super spiritual word. It's just an ordinary normal word for a student. So you know, you go to school to learn how to read and write, you're a, you're a, you're a disciple, you're a student. And that's all it means. It's a churchy word for a student, which means that becoming a follower of Jesus means becoming one of his students. Becoming, we talk about following Jesus. That's another churchy line, right? I'm going to follow the Lord and what does that mean? Like, I'm going to be a missionary in Africa or I'm going to like... And it just it, I mean, it, it turns into some kind of nebulous. Like it's vague. Like, what does it really mean to follow Jesus? Well, at its most basic level, it, it means multiple things. But at its most basic level, becoming a follower of Jesus just means becoming one of His students, someone who learns and practices the teachings of Jesus. Like, if we just if we just sort of wipe away the extra spiritual stuff, that's what that's where it is. Discipleship is becoming a student of Jesus who learns what he teaches and puts it into practice. Now remember the Great Commission. Remember in Matthew 28, Jesus says, Go therefore into all the world and make disciples. Basically, he tells them, you're all college recruiters. You're all going to go out into the world and you're going to recruit students of Jesus. You're going to go to all the world. You're going to preach the gospel. And you're going to turn people into my followers. People who, be, who devote themselves to my teaching. To me and to my teaching. And he confirms that in the next part of the commission. Go into all the world. Make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them. That means they're students. Of course, that's what disciple means. Teaching them what? To obey All that I have commanded you. To keep everything that I have commanded. That's what the apostles are told to go and to do. And we find them doing that here in the book of Acts. Because it says they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching. The disciples are obeying. The twelve are obeying what Jesus said. And they are beginning to Teach all that Jesus said and did. A disciple is someone, therefore, who devotes himself or herself to be a student of Jesus. Now, here in Acts 2, we see that they're devoted to learning the apostles' teaching. Learning the apostles' teaching. This is why I've called this uh, this first point a church of scholars. Now, don't let that scare anybody. It doesn't mean... Well, the word scholar today, right, means PhD, expert, professional on this topic, right? But in older English, way back in the day, a scholar just meant a student. That's all it meant. And so everyone who went to a university as a student was, were the scholars. The scholars weren't the teachers. The scholars were the, the guys who went to learn. The teachers were called doctors, and what they taught was doctrine. The doctors... Teach the doctrine to the scholars. That's how it it used to be said in English. And today the words have sort of, you know, they've they've morphed in their meaning as words do. But this is what this early church was. All those disciples. 3,000 people get converted. Now, some of them were just there for the festival at Pentecost and they went back home. They were just there on pilgrimage. They didn't live there. But a bunch of them stayed and formed the core of the church in Jerusalem. And all these guys became scholars. They became students of the apostles. They sat at the apostles' feet and they learned. They weren't experts. They were devoted students. And the apostles' teaching, as I said, could be translated doctrine. The apostles' doctrine. And the apostles had had two different kinds of doctrine. So there are two different kinds of doctrine. You have the doctrine that says this is what you need to believe. And then you have the doctrine that says this is what you need to do. And in the Westminster Confession, or Westminster Shorter Catechism, we're asked, what do the Scriptures principally teach? And the answer is, the Scriptures principally teach what we are to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of us. What we are to believe and what we are to do. And this is what the apostles are teaching. They're teaching Christians beliefs and behaviors. Here's your faith, here's your practice, here's what you believe, here's how you live. Apostolic doctrine, what to believe and what to do. What does it look like to be a believing, obedient Christian? That's what they're teaching. What does it look like to be a believing and obedient Christian? And we see later in the, in the Scriptures that this is exactly the way the teaching of the apostles is described. So, for example, here's Romans chapter 6. In Romans 6, 17 and 18, Paul says this to the Romans. He says, "...but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to, that, to the standard of teaching to which you were committed." committed to a standard of teaching. From the heart, you are now obedient to that standard of teaching. So the apostles have a standard, and they taught that to the churches, and that's what the churches were committed to, from their heart. And what that meant was, they were no longer slaves of sin. That's verse 18. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. So this, just, this wasn't just textbook stuff. Fun facts for the final exam. Right? This was practical. You're not enslaved to sin anymore. And here's what that means theologically. And here's what that looks like practically. What does it mean to no longer be a slave to sin? He describes it in terms of being committed to a standard of doctrine. A standard of teaching. Paul says this again elsewhere. I'll give you uh, another example. In 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. 1 Timothy 6, 3 and 4, Paul says to Timothy, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Right, so he's telling Timothy, there is a standard of teaching and there is such a thing as doctrine that agrees with the sound words of the Lord Jesus and the teaching that accords with godliness. So the sound words is, you need to believe the right thing. There's a right way to believe about Jesus. There's a sound teaching and then there's an unsound, an unhealthy, and an incorrect and erroneous way of holding to the words of Jesus. So get the words of Jesus right. Get his teachings right. And it's a teaching that's in accordance with godliness. In other words, it has practical implications. Not just cramming new information into your head, but actually getting new ways of living out there in your life. That's what it's about. The apostles had a standard of belief and behavior that they received from Jesus and passed on to us. And it's preserved here in the scriptures today. Disciples are the ones who are devoted to learning that standard and keeping it. Learn the standard and living by the standard. That's what being a disciple is about. And discipleship is helping us learn the standard and, and stick to it. Putting discipline structures in place so that we learn and grow together. Now again, I want to emphasize a point of encouragement here. That we're not talking about becoming Bible scholars in the way we use scholar today. We're not talking about PhDs and systematic theologians and philosophers and brilliant, brainy, crazy smart. We're not talking about becoming that. God equips some people to be that. And calls people to certain positions in the church to teach and do that kind of thing there are people who who are so far beyond and above me that they've already forgot more than I'll ever know okay so I'm mid-level at best there there are some brilliant people God has equipped and called to write the books and do all the things and thank God for them that's not what I'm saying you need to be called to be not PhDs, not experts, just ordinary believers who know Jesus, who really know their Jesus. Ordinary believers who know Jesus and know his word and his will and his ways. That's what we're talking about. And there's a really encouraging verse in Acts 4.13. And this is about the apostles, not just ordinary disciples, but the apostles, all right? Chapter 4, verse 13. The apostles have been... Peter and John and others have been taken before the Jewish high council and they are being charged. Don't you ever preach Jesus' name ever again or else. Right? They're being threatened seriously by the authorities in their day in Jerusalem. Don't you dare preach the gospel of Jesus ever again or else. And in verse 13... It says, now when they saw, this is the high council, right? The the apostles, they say, you know, we're going to obey God, not man. So do your worst. We're not going to shut up. And then they respond to to the disciples and they say this, verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, bumpkins from the lake. Right? Peter's a fisherman. John's not, a, John's not up there in the synagogue, you know, quoting the whole Old Testament in Hebrew. He, he's not that kind of guy. These are fishermen. He says, when they perceived they were uneducated, they hadn't been to school. Just common folk. They, when they saw their boldness, and they perceived they were uneducated common men, they were astonished... And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I love that. That means, from, that means from the most illiterate, simple Christian you can think of, all the way up to the brainiest intellect you've ever seen, who's just a mind with legs. <laughs> and everywhere in between, that enormous spectrum... If you could just be with Jesus, people will pick up on it. And it won't matter if you've never been to school or couldn't write your own name. If you know Jesus and you learn and listen to him, you can be a scholar, a Christian disciple who's bold and strong and an example to everyone else. Be encouraged. That's what discipleship's about. People need to recognize that we have been with Jesus. That he is our teacher. And we follow him. And we know him well. And we live for him. That's what discipleship's about. That's what devoting yourself to the teaching is about. So that brings us to the second point. Learning is the heart of discipleship because it's the only way we will ever actually become mature Christians. It's the only way we're really ever going to grow is if we learn. You know, we can take last week's sermon and say, that's all we need. We just need to pray. And, and that all by itself will be enough. That'll get us through. And you got to do last week, that's the lifeblood. That means if the blood's not flowing, the body ain't alive. So the blood's got to be flowing. We've got to be devoted to prayer. Oh, yes. But as as one preacher once put it, if we're crying out for revival, it won't do any good unless we're also laboring for reformation. We can pray all day long, Lord, please let me grow. Oh, I want to grow. Help me to grow. Make me a mature Christian. Help me grow. Lord, I want to grow. We can pray that all day long. But if we never take any actual steps in our lives towards growth, we won't grow. It won't happen. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, I planted the seed there in Corinth, and Apollos came behind me, and he watered that seed. But God's the one who gave the growth but do you think God would have made anything grow if no one ever planted the seed, nobody ever watered it? I mean, he could do a miracle, absolutely. But that's not normally how it works. He could just zap fry you and microwave your discipleship and, you know, hit the popcorn button and poof, out comes a mature Christian. But that ain't how it works, right? You can't microwave this stuff. This is slow cooker Christianity. Not the Instapot either. This is, this is like all day, okay? Can he do that? Sure. Does he do it for some people in small spurts? Of course. I think I can point to a time in my life when I felt like, man, a big surge of growth happened and it was awesome. and I still remember it. But it takes a whole Christian life to get ripe for heaven. The crop doesn't grow overnight. We don't ripen in one evening we got to take steps if we want to grow and we grow through knowledge scriptures tell us that we grow through the learning process this is uh second Peter the very last the very last verse in 2nd Peter chapter 3 verse 18 this is how Peter signs off the letter he says but grow in the grace and knowledge. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. That's how he ends this letter. He says, guys, grow. It's a command. Guys, you need to grow. And you grow in the grace of Jesus, and you grow in the knowledge of Jesus. That's what we're told to do. We grow through knowledge We're back in the book of Romans. What does Paul say in chapter 12? Famous first couple verses in Romans 12. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then verse 2, famously, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We grow through knowledge. The way we resist being conformed into just another worldling like everybody else and becoming an image bearer of Christ in His glorious heavenly virtue, learning who He is, looking like Him, walking like Him, being like Him, being conformed to Him, both in His life and in His death, Paul says, so that if by any means I can attain to Christ, to be like Him, how does that happen? We have to be renewed, and we've got to be renewed in our minds. And as the mind is changed, so will the life. There's a very natural life cycle to the Christian life. We all begin as baby Christians. We all be, whether we're saved at 6 or 66, we begin as what Paul calls infants in Christ. We all begin our Christian lives, our spiritual birth is just that. It's a birth and you're an infant Christian. And infants make a mess. I don't have one yet, but I can guess. Okay? You don't have to taste a donut to know that it's sweet. You don't have to have an infant to know that they make a mess. Okay, and baby Christians sometimes will just make a mess. It's like, I don't, know, I don't know up from down as a Christian. I have no idea what I'm talking about. I could open my Bible and not understand a syllable on day one, but I'm still on fire for Jesus and I'm going to figure it out. <laughs> right, you're a baby Christian. You're just a baby Christian, an infant in Christ, and that's normal and natural. You have to start there. You're not born again and all of a sudden you know everything about Christianity. You start out the life cycle of, of, of your Christian life in that infant stage, but we're called to grow up after that. We're called to grow up after that. Now in First Peter chapter one I'm sorry, chapter two verses uh, one through three, uh, Peter says, he says, to, he says to his readers this: he says, "Put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy." and envy, and all slander. In verse 2, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Like you guys, you new Christians, do what newborn Christians do. Do what babies do. Crave. Have a craving for the pure spiritual milk of the Lord so that you can grow. But that's the idea, is that you're going to drink in the pure spiritual milk of the Lord and eventually you're going to grow up. And it is indeed time for all the baby Christians to grow up. There are people, and you, you probably have known some, there are people who, who have been saved for decades and, you, and they, just, they haven't grown hardly at all. And you just think, well, what's stunting their growth? Why are you still in the same spiritual condition you were in when you prayed that prayer 30 years ago? Ha- has the spirit not been moving in your life? Have you just been not doing anything for three decades? You know, and, and all of us go through seasons like that where we just don't grow at all, or maybe we feel like we're growing backwards. We're not growing, we're shrinking or something. Well, all of us go through periods like that, but if you've been saved for, you know since you were 10 and you're 80 and you're, you haven't grown at all, it's like we have a problem. We have a big problem. And it's hard to be around, honestly. It's hard, it's, hard to, it's hard to be around Christians like that who just don't have any interest in growing. It's hard to have a good Christian relationship with them. And what pops in my head, um, and you know, forgive me, this is how my mind works. What pops in my head is an episode of Friends. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. This is really for Tom and Julie. (laughs) There's an episode of Friends. I think it's Monica. She's like, she finds out that the stud from high school that she just thought was incredible, she like ran into him again and was like, ooh, I'm going to date, I forget his name. I'm going to date Tommy from high school. And ooh, the the cool guy from high school. And then she actually goes on, you've seen the episode, right. So she goes on the date with him and she's like, so do you keep up with anybody from high school? And he's like, oh yeah, I keep up with And he lists like 25 people. And and they're like, well, where are you working now? Oh, I'm still working at the movie theater. Oh, why? He's like, why would I give up that job? Free movies, free popcorn, ugh, you know. What are you driving? Oh, the same motorcycle I had in high school. And he was the exact same critter that he was in high school. He hadn't grown at all. (laughs) He was just, he was hanging out with the same people, telling the same jokes, wearing the same clothes, driving the same stuff. And of course, this was a horrendous date. (laughs) And Monica wanted out of there and you would too. This is what, I mean it's, so it's hilarious in a sitcom, but it's just tragic when it's real in someone's Christian life. And it's hard to have a serious Christian relationship with that person because it's like, why are you still stuck as this infant? But we all started there, but why are you still like that? Why haven't you grown any? And and if a church is like this, not just the end, of, but the whole church is like this, it's like well, Lord, you've been here for 300 years, but why are you still stuck in the 1700s? <laughs> that's just an example. I'm not accusing us of anything. But I'm just saying, if that's, right, that's something we've got to watch out for. That's something we've got to be careful with. We're called to grow. Of course we start out young and immature and crazy, but then we get serious, we get disciplined, and we grow up. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right, verse 11, Paul says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And he tells that to the Corinthians because they are stuck in infant mode. And he calls them out on it earlier in 1 Corinthians in chapter 3. He says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready. You are still in the flesh. And what did that look like in Corinth? He says, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh In behaving only in a human way. So all these vices and hang-ups and dissension and disorder and all the all the junk that really was just clogging up the Corinthian church. That stuff he says is all the flesh and you're not living like mature Christians. You're still infants in Christ. I had to come to you and I had to feed you milk when you ought to be eating solid food at this point. That was the problem in Corinth. And so we are called to grow. And it is time to grow up. It's time to turn the corner on our growth. And I'm not excluding myself from that, right? If I, like, okay, well, I had a big growth spurt in high school. Fantastic. Am I, but am I still stuck in that growth spurt I had in 12th grade at 35? Okay, well, stop bragging about high school and... And maybe see what the Lord has for you as an adult Christian. And this is what we're called to do. Time to grow up. And this comes into the last point becoming a competent Christian. Growing up requires training, it requires learning, it requires discipline, it requires devotion, it requires being devoted to learning. The apostolic teaching of what we should believe and what we should do. Now, from my time in like, uh, from my limited exposure to the business world, it was all retail and I was, you know, like mid-level management in, in one or two places. And just from the, being in that sort of corporate kind of world, and then from the one or two like leadership seminars I had to take through seminary, we talked about what competence is. What is competence? If you're a competent worker, a competent employee, what does that mean? And, and we basically learned that it, was, it involved three things. Knowledge. You know what you're doing. You know what the job entails. You understand conceptually what my job is. Knowledge. Skills. Okay? You need to have some talent. You need to build some capabilities to do the things that it requires, that the job requires. And then the last thing was experience. Experience, which gives you the wisdom to know how to keep things going right, and then if things go wrong, oh, I've seen that before, here's how we fix that. Oh, we could go wrong here, I know how to avoid that, that pitfall by, do, by going this way. And just knowing how to do the job. If we do it this way, it's going to go bad. If we do it that way, it's going to go well. Here's how we avoid the bad and do the good. Just the experience and the wisdom that comes from experience. Knowledge, skills, and experience, which gives wisdom. And those are sort of what competence means on the job. And no matter what job you're doing, you've got to have competence. And so what we're called to do is we're called to cultivate these things, our knowledge and skills and our experience at being a competent Christian. Knowledge, skills, and experience are wisdom in living the Christian life. We've got to cultivate these in order to be a competent Christian. And discipleship is all about helping one another cultivate Christian competency. The last passage I want to look at is, is in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews 5, 11, into the first part of chapter 6. Listen to what Paul says. Well, if it was Paul, look, we don't know. The author of Hebrews says this. Hebrews 5. And just before this, he's talking about Melchizedek, right, that shadowy figure from Genesis. And he's trying to make some, some deep theological tie-in between Jesus and Melchizedek. And then he pauses in the middle of this, and he says, you know, about this we have much to say. And it's, it's hard to explain, he says, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone else to teach you all over again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Because I, I would love to get into this, 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 this topic in the scriptures with you. I'd love to talk about this and explain this, but it's going to be really hard to do because you used to be listening, but now you're dull of hearing. You're not learning anymore. And by this time, you ought to be teaching this to others. But you need someone else to teach you, not the deep stuff, but the basics. You still need us to go over Christianity 101, elementary stuff. He says, you still need milk and not solid food. Verse 13, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled. Right? We're talking about competence. Everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That's everything I just mentioned and what competence is. Knowledge, skills, and experience. And if we're still children in the faith, and we're still relying on milk, and we're still needing to learn the basics all over again, and we never get beyond 101, we're just not growing... Because we ought to move on to the solid stuff. That doesn't mean you're not patient with people. It doesn't mean that if you don't get it the first time, then someone needs to crack the whip and tell you what's wrong with you. It doesn't imply any of that kind of impatience and cruelty from a teacher who just thinks, I'm so smart, why are you so dumb? That's, that's not at all what's implied. What's implied is after constant, steady, patient, years later, and you still just are dull of hearing then we've got to address a deeper issue. That's what he's talking about. And into into chapter 6, he says this, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God, and of instruction about washings and the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits in other words, we're going we're to grow and we're going to become mature, God willing. That's the aim. And so this is what we need to do together. Why is this the heart of discipleship? Because it's the heart that pumps the blood. It's being engaged, actually actively following Jesus, seeking to learn what we're to believe, what He wants us to believe, and learn what He wants us to do, and then putting it into practice... And trying to grow and train ourselves and through constant training and discipline, learning who our Jesus is and what He wants us to to believe and how He wants us to live. And if we're not engaged in that process, then your body might be full of blood and full of prayers, but if there's no heart that's actually given some vitality, that's actually making the blood pump and move, then we don't have a pulse do you have a pulse today, Christian? If we checked your spiritual pulse, would you be found alive? That your heart would be beating to know the Lord? And that you'd be putting putting your devotion not just in prayer, but also in becoming a mature, competent Christian. Now, in very shortly from now, we're going to begin, as I mentioned last week, these new... Home groups, or you can call them upper room groups, based on last week's sermon. But these will start very soon, and they're going to have a curriculum, an actual curriculum that we're going to follow for this kind of instruction. And what's the point? It's to give us... It's, this, these home groups are supposed to do this. Clear! <laughs> okay? It's supposed to give us a jump start. It's supposed to get us going. and Again, that's not a a commentary on everybody's spiritual condition. It's about me. It's about Matt. It's about everybody. It's about the elders and everybody else. Let's raise the bar and let's get our heart rate elevated and let's be on fire disciples. And let's just see at the end of the year if we won't even recognize ourselves anymore because God will have done such an amazing work with us and we'll be so changed and everything in this church will be A hundred times better than we ever thought it could be. Now, are we guaranteed that? No, but if we just sit here and do nothing, of course we're guaranteed that nothing's going to happen. So arise. Let the heart beat. Work up a sweat. Get involved. Join one of these groups. Learn. Become a dedicated, devoted disciple Join us as we devote ourselves to growing up together as faithful, mature, competent disciples of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I ask for myself first and foremost that you would jumpstart me. That you would get my heart beating that you would get my blood flowing and let it start here. Because it's all fine and dandy if I can just stand up here and say all the right words and then go home and it not make a difference. The height of hypocrisy. Spare us, Lord. Spare us from saying the right stuff. Exegeting the text and then not going home and living it. So, Lord, help me, help the elders, deacons, trustees... Committees, volunteers, all the way down to everybody else who just attends, who may not even be members yet. Help us, Lord. And give us that devotion. Give us our hearts back. Give us our minds back. Give us our spirit. Give us our fire again. And as we pray and cry out for your spirit to move, and for the fire to fall, for us to be filled with all your energy, that we can engage and put into practice as we cry out for that kind of revival in ourselves, in our families, our marriages, relationships, our church relationships, our ministries, our programs, as we cry out for that revival, Lord, help us to be devoted to laboring for that reformation that revival is supposed to bring. To not lay back and think we're just going to get zapped with a lightning bolt from the heavens and all of a sudden we'll be mature, but to help us to devote ourselves to it and not to see it as some drudgery and burden we've got to carry. Oh, I guess we're Christians. I guess we'll have to learn some stuff and start trying to obey, I guess. No. But Lord, help us to see the joy that it is. And let us be so satisfied with the growth that we experience that we will just weep because we waited so long. Lord, do that work for us. Move us forward. Get our bodies... Get our body functioning, get the blood flowing, the discipleship happening, so that we can be the people you've called us to be. Because ultimately, discipleship's about knowing you better. So Lord, help us to know you and to trust in you and to do all you've called us to do. For your name's sake and for your glory, we ask it. You get all the glory and we get all the joy. And that's the best deal ever. Help us to take it. In Jesus' name. Amen.